Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's begin with a little thought experiment, okay? I want you to fill in the blank in your mind. Don't let anybody know what you're actually thinking. Uh, it might be embarrassing. Um, but fill in the blank. There's no such thing as a Christian. Just use your imagination a little bit. It's going to be different for every one of us. But it's not hard to come up with some kind of adjective to fill in that statement. Um, we can all think of ways to describe the wrong kind of Christian, right? It might be a theological adjective, like liberal or fundamentalist. It could be a political adjective, just pick your least favorite party. It could be a social or economic adjective. In fact, get this, even Jesus couldn't resist saying something like, it's how hard it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom. Whatever comes to your mind, the rule I have for you is be honest. There's no such thing as a whatever Christian. Today we're going to learn about how the Apostle Peter wrestled with this question. And here's the thing. How he responded to his struggle turned out to be a critical turning point in the history of the entire church. We've been uh, working our way through the book of Acts this fall. And just for quick review uh, of the ground we've covered so far, let's go back to the beginning. Luke opens Acts with Jesus giving the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the ends of the earth. And with this introduction, Luke is painting a picture of circles that are ever-expanding. He knows that Jesus' implication in making this commission is that it comes with the expectation for Jesus' influence, the influence of his gospel to just ever grow and ever spread. And from the start, in the first five chapters, Luke focuses on, his, on Jesus' disciples in Jerusalem and Judea. And we see the Spirit fall on the church at Pentecost, and then we see it explode from there for several chapters. By the time you get to chapter 8, there's a shift in focus. Now we're in Samaria. And a couple of weeks ago, Brent reminded us just how weird life can be as a person of faith. And we were introduced to Philip and Simon the Sorcerer and this Ethiopian eunuch fellow. Acts 9, the focus widens again. Luke introduces us to Saul. And last week, Randall shared with us the dramatic story of how God transformed this radicalized religious terrorist into his apostle for the entire Roman world. I hope you can see the, the circles ever expanding here. That's, that's the picture that Luke is painting. God's spirit is working through the church as they bear witness to Jesus everywhere they go in the world. Today, we're going to shift focus again. I invite you to find Acts chapter 10 in your Bibles. And here, 
we're going to see that it's not, it's one thing to have one apostle who's ready to go to the ends of the earth, all the way from Jerusalem out to the far reaches of the Roman world. It's one thing to have Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. But it's a whole other thing for the whole church to be ready to make this leap. You see, Jesus still has some unfinished business with the church here. That's what Luke is saying. Collectively, the church is not ready to go to the ends of the earth. Not yet. Luke returns our attention to Peter to share a pivotal moment that makes the church ready. And I just, it's really interesting to note here. If you're in Luke 10, just look back at chapter 9. That's actually, Peter reappears in the last 12 verses of chapter 9, where he's at the center of a couple of amazing events. There is this paralytic named Aeneas, and he's healed. And there's this woman named Dorcas, and she's raised from the dead. Now, if you're looking for baby names, Aeneas, Dorcas, I'm just saying, maybe they should make a comeback. Anyways, the, and I'm not looking at anyone in particular. <laughs> Here's the interesting thing about this. There's uh, three successive events that Luke is trying to tell us here that Peter is involved in. And look at the number of verses. Aeneas gets healed. A paralytic is like out of his wheelchair. Four verses. A woman is raised from the dead. Eight verses. Peter hangs out with a Roman guy and leads him to Jesus. 66 verses. It's almost like Luke is saying, yeah, 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 yeah. When God's spirit moves, people are going to get healed. People even get raised from the dead. I think we've established that by now. But get a load of this. When Peter helps Cornelius become a Christian, everything changes for the church. So Luke tells us this story about Peter and Cornelius, and he does it in four scenes. So I want to start with scene one, and we're just going to read it straight out of Acts, uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He's a centurion in what is known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need, and he prayed regularly to God. On a, one day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! <gasps> Cornelius is, uh, stared at him in fear. He was terrified. What is it, Lord? He asked. And the angel answered, Your prayers and your gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, Send men to Joppa and bring back someone named Simon, who's also called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. And when the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called together two of his servants and a devout soldier, who's one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them off to Joppa. Cornelius is a good guy. He's devout, God-fearing, he's generous, but he has some strikes against him. 
Some strikes that, on, that mean un, unless he makes some really radical changes, he'll never, ever be included in the faith community, the Jewish faith community. You see, and this is the thing, at the time, the church was still predominantly a Jewish community. And so, for Peter, it would be completely reasonable and biblical to say there's no such thing as a foreign Roman Christian. There's no such thing as an occupying soldier Christian. There's no such thing as an uncircumcised Gentile Christian. Non-Jewish followers of the way, they're still few and far between at this moment in the story. Let's move to scene two. It begins in verse nine at about noon, and now we're in Joppa. And this is where things get even weirder. Again, Peter's waiting for lunch, and while he's waiting, he experiences an altered state of consciousness. He goes into a trance. And during this trance, three times, God gives him a vision with a simple lesson. Don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, Peter's pondering this lesson after he comes out of his his altered state of consciousness. And with perfect timing, the entourage sent by Cornelius just shows up. And they invite him to go with them back to Cornelius' house. And it's at this point of the story that I just, I want to pause and draw our attention back to something that Brent was sharing with us a few weeks ago. He was sharing the different modes of interaction that Christians tend to have when they're like relating to the world. One mode of interaction is fortification mode. And this is where the church sees the culture around it as nothing but evil and sinful and dangerous, and they want to hunker down. They have a mindset that says, we're right, everyone else is wrong, and they're out to get us. We need to take a defensive attitude. And Peter could have responded this way when these strangers showed up at at the door. But he didn't do that. He instead, he invites them in for the night, and then the next day, he accompanies them back to Caesarea. Let's go to scene three. It takes a couple of days to get from Joppa to Caesarea, and when Peter arrives at the house, he could have slipped into another mode, domination. Domination is similar to the, to the fortification mode because it sees the world as nothing but hostile. They say, we're right, everybody else is wrong, They're out to get us, so we need to fight back. It's like, let's take an offensive pose. And according to the Bible, at least the way that Peter and everybody in that part of the world, the way they read the Bible back then, and according to his denominational distinctives, Peter had every right to refuse to speak to Cornelius until he meets certain conditions. Circumcision, and a commitment to living a kosher life. He could have gone on the offensive. But that's not what happens. Actually, what actually happens kind of reminds me of like two old burnt out hippies meeting each other. Cornelius, I had the strangest vision, man. 
Peter, whoa, really, dude? I had the strangest vision too. Whoa. And then Peter proceeds to preach the gospel to the whole house. And before he can even finish his spiel, God's spirit shows up and, 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 and just comes on the whole place. And, and it just gets really bizarre because Peter's never seen this happen before to Gentiles. He doesn't show favoritism to anyone. The Holy Spirit falls on people from any nation, any people group, when they fear God and do what's right. That's what he saw happen. And that's the point of the lesson of the sheet with the animals coming down and that strange vision that Peter had. Not only are all foods kosher in God's eyes, but all people are too. Every single one of us, we bear the image of God and we are worthy of a relationship with him regardless of who we are. Would have been quite a scene. Scene four. This is where chapter 11 begins. So the report of what happens in Caesarea gets back to the Christians in the Judea area and Peter has to face the music. You see... There are many Christians in Judea who are stuck in fortification mode and they're stuck in domination mode and they are worried and they accuse Peter of a third mode of interaction. They accuse him of accommodation. Their thinking is pretty clear. Peter had to have capitulated to this Roman interloper. He had to have watered down the gospel in some way because everybody knows there's no such thing as an uncircumcised Gentile Christian. Okay, I just, we need to pause because this is really hard for us to wrap our heads around. Um, culturally, socially, biblically, theo- theologically, like, what's the big deal, guys, from where we sit? Why were these identity markers so important back then? I'd like to encourage us all that when we try to be good readers of the Bible, we have to appreciate, we have to work to understand that Peter's world, the world of the New Testament, and Moses' world, the world of the Old Testament, and Abraham, and the the whole biblical world, it's entirely different from where where we sit right now. Different worldviews, different culture, different everything. And this whole bit about clean and unclean, Jewish and Gentile, that big, all, and all the markers, the identity markers that go with us, the best that I can understand is that it all goes back to how people in those days understood the idea of holiness as it's shown in the Torah, the, 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 the first five books of the Bible. And the logic went something like this, is that you want to be in God's presence, and and. And God worked it all out that you can be in his presence, but you need to be ritually pure. You need to be ceremonially clean. And if you came into contact in your everyday life with something that uh, made you unclean, then you were out of luck in terms of getting back into God's presence until you addressed that and went through the rituals to become clean again. 
And, and that's a big deal. Like, it was a gift of God that just set that all up that you could even be in his presence in the first place. And yet, you know, there's challenges, right? There's complications in life. And when you add to that the fact that if you, you, you can also come into contact with other people who are unclean, they can make you unclean. And by the time you get to Peter's day, it's really hard to trust that any Gentile out there could possibly not be unclean. Like, the, the working assumption was is that they're all unclean. And so, you know what? Let's just play it safe. Let's just leave them alone. This is why it was such a big deal for God to send Peter to see Cornelius. And I'm just scratching the surface. This, this is a, a huge part that is really difficult for us to understand. But if you want to do a deeper dive into the whole concept of holiness in the biblical world, I highly recommend that you start with a, there's a little six-minute explainer video produced by the Bible Project. That picture is, a th- is the picture of their thumbnail. You could Google it. Um, in, if you go to the stream or if you're on the video stream of this message, I put a link there as well. Six minutes, and it will kind of get you going down the road of understanding this. But I want you to appreciate, this is a foreign concept to us. Now, as I've been thinking about, how, does, how do you relate clean and unclean to our world? Um, I, I don't know if it's really possible, but one thing that comes to mind is that as modern Western Christians, we have developed a bit of a sharp distinction between things that are Christian and things that are secular. Christian, clean, secular, unclean. And at least that's how I grew up. And, and it's still part of the way I, I look at the world. In fact, this, this is so ingrained that we've built a multi-billion dollar industry around this distinction, right? There's a Christian version of pretty much everything out there. Um, I was talking about this with Brent this week, and, and we uh, go- did a little Googling, and, and we found that there's a Christian version of almost every major board game ever invented. There's Christian Monopoly, Christian Apples to Apples, Christian Scategories. There's even this, the old classic, uh, no um, operation, but it's Noah Ark themed. <laughs> I'm like, that, how does the premise even work? Like, are you taking the animals out or putting them in? And what happens, you know, like, is the goal to like leave the unicorn off of the ark? Like, I, I don't know. It, it's just bizarre. Anyway, getting back to Peter's time. It was a predominantly Jewish community, the Christians in Peter's day, and it was perfectly reasonable and biblical to say there's no such thing as an uncircumcised, non-kosher Christian. But in Acts chapter 11, Peter stands up and he says, Au contraire. When he's summoned to Jerusalem, he goes with six witnesses, I'll have you know, and he tells the whole story about the visions, about how uh, God is teaching him that, that all food and all people are clean, and about how the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius' house. And verse 17 in Acts chapter 11, so if God gave them, Cornelius' family, the same gift he gave us, the ones who believe in Jesus Christ, 
Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? This, my friends, is transformation mode. Even though what's happening challenges all of Peter's assumptions about how God is supposed to work in the world, Peter recognizes something new is happening when the Spirit comes into Cornelius' life. Transformation. And that's, that's the mode, isn't it? Isn't that what we all hunger for? Verse 18. When everybody else heard this, they had no further objections to Peter. And they praised God, saying... So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And that's the story of how God's, how the church became God's global multi-ethnic family. Amen. Isn't that awesome? If there's one thing that you should be thankful for this Thanksgiving, it's that. Isn't that awesome? And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> right. Okay. So remember, we were introduced to Paul last week. And he wrote a ton of letters in the New Testament. And in the second chapter of the letter to the Galatians, Paul writes about an incident between him and Peter that happened a few years later after this story. Um, it's not a pretty story. You see, Peter learned his lesson, and he goes with Paul to this church in Antioch. And this church in Antioch, it's mostly Gentile now. These, this is, this is, now we're in the ends of the earth part of the story. And Peter's having a great time. He's fellowshipping with them and visiting and eating together, and everything's great until some other Christians show up from Jerusalem. And Peter loses his nerve. He backs off. He's intimidated by the fortification people. He's intimidated by, especially by the domination people. And he backs off. He won't eat with these Antioch Christians. And Paul confronts him for his hypocrisy. That's what we have in Galatians. Now, this isn't just a Peter problem, okay? This was the first big theological controversy in the church's history and it centered around one question just how Jewish do you have to be to follow Jesus and if you're talking to a Christian who is stuck in fortification or domination mode they'll say well the answer is simple you have to be Jewish you have to convert there's no other option it says so in the Bible and then on the other side oh and not only that we're right and if you don't see it our way, well, you're just accommodating. You're accommodation Christian. And then over here, you got Paul and sometimes Peter who's saying, no, we believe in transformation. And we, we know that in Christ, Christ is reconciling all people to God, no matter who they are. And, oh, and by the way, according to, according to our experience, the Holy Spirit himself is backing us up. And so they had this big meeting. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. It was the first ecumenical council 
of the church, and they made a big decision there. Now, I just, I, I want to nerd out with you for a second, and, and just look at this timeline. I got it from my good old NIV study Bible that I had in the 80s, and, um, and I just want you to appreciate just the time dimension of this situation. You got Peter meeting Cornelius, and then about 10, late, 10 years later is when that big council went down. And then it's hard because we don't know when Galatians was written. So Paul might have been confronting Peter somewhere before the council or somewhere after. Um, I don't know if we'll ever figure that out. But, and then Paul keeps writing more letters. Um, he wrote the letter to the Romans at about 60. And I don't know if you've read Romans lately, but like, like the big point of it is, hey guys, the gospel... It's for everyone, you know? So Jews and Gentiles together, you can both embrace it. So can you kind of get along in Rome, please? Just think about it. 20 years from our story to Rome. It's pretty amazing, ends of the earth stuff, when you look at it that way. But they were wrestling with this problem for 20 years. Look at the church today. Are we any better 2,000 years later? How many denominations are there? And how many of them think that they know better than anybody else the right way to follow Jesus? I guess we're bumping into the human condition here. I guess it means that we're still a ways off from happily ever after. Maybe it's time for Christians to seek a deeper transformation. As I've been ruminating on this, my mind keeps going back to those words that Peter spoke about um, what he witnessed there in Cornelius' house. He asks the leaders, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Maybe it's time for Christians to seek a transformation of our perspectives. If we believe there's no such thing as a whatever Christian, then we really don't understand the transformation power of the Holy Spirit. But I gotta tell you, it is so much easier to stay stuck whatever mode, fortification, domination, accommodation, it's so much more comfortable there, folks. How do we get unstuck? How can we put ourselves in a position that we can actually experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit? I wish I could just Wave my hand like those guys on TV do, and it just happens to us all magically. Doesn't work that way, but I have a couple of suggestions. First of all, don't take my word for this. Read this story for yourself. I encourage you to take time this week and in the weeks ahead to read and reread this story. It's Acts 10 and 11. Keep going to Acts 15 if you're really keen. But as you do, I want you to do it in a way where you're opening yourself up to the transformation power of the Spirit. I ask him to change your perspective on people and your life. 
Open yourself up to what he might show you. And as you read, allow the Holy Spirit to just guide the eyes of your mind to see all the threads of transformation that he's weaving into this story. The threads that he wove through Cornelius and his family. The threads that he wove through Peter and all the other people in this story. Meditate on that. And second of all, don't just sit there with your Bible on your lap. Engage the world around you. Get out of your house. And in the same way that you ask the Holy Spirit to show you all the transformational threads woven through that story in the scripture, ask him to give you the eyes to see all the threads of transformation that he's weaving all around you. And maybe up until today, you've been oblivious to all those threads. But don't just sit there. And remember, it's going to take practice to see this stuff. It took way more than just this weird vision to transform Peter's perspective. It took him years of practice. You're going to need to practice too. I think if we, if we allow the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to transformation, that is the first major step to this transformation that Christians need. But I will say that when you engage in the Holy Spirit in this way, and if you practice it long enough, you're going to be challenged. There's three things that I've encountered and challenges that I've experienced, and you, you will too, in some way, shape, or form. First of all, when you recognize God at work, it will challenge your assumptions. After what happened at Cornelius' house, Peter had to reevaluate everything he thought he knew about how God works, about how God relates to people. Maybe you'll have to do the same thing for the people that you have a hard time loving. Second challenge, you're going to learn that practice is boring. It took Peter years any spiritual practice is monotonous. That's the nature of practice. That's why hundreds of people or thousands of people don't show up when a team practices. It's boring. It's way more exciting to watch a game, right? Just remember this. In the immortal words of that uh, Canadian rock and roll legend, Bruce Coburn, nothing worth having comes without a fight. You've got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. That's practice. And thirdly, transformation can get you in trouble. Because here's the thing. If you're rubbing shoulders with people that are convinced that the world is out to get them and they're right and everybody else is wrong, anything is going to look like compromise. And this is what got Peter in trouble. It's also what got Jesus in trouble. It's what got him crucified. So just remember, if you get into trouble, you're in good company. So be ready to be challenged. When Peter helped Cornelius become a Christian, the church would never be the same again. And also, given that most of us in this room, I'm guessing, are probably Gentile, um, this, is, this story is actually 
our origin story at Cochrane Alliance Church. And I hope that you celebrate this, this Thanksgiving weekend. It's a great honor to be included, isn't it? And while you do that Thanksgiving uh, stuff, I hope that you will remember some things and that the transformation work will start to begin for you. I just want just to, just quickly here, Peter said some things that I think would make great tweets. These are the lessons that he was learning. Don't call anything impure what God has made clean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism to anyone but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And lastly, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? These are challenging lessons. They don't allow us to have a neat and tidy faith. But in the long run, we get something better. We get transformation with the Holy Spirit. We get to experience it. We get to, we get to channel it through our lives. And we have the privilege of watching him do transformation work all around us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, on this Thanksgiving weekend, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that your heart is big enough to embrace everyone into your family. We are the beneficiaries of that big love. And so God, we just celebrate you for that. We worship you for that. And, and we, we just can't thank you enough. And at the same time, Lord, after the Thanksgiving is done and as we kind of go back into our routines of life, I pray that you would, like the scales that fell off of Saul's eyes, that you would open our eyes to all the little threads of transformation that are going on. You've woven them all through scripture for us to discover and you've woven them all through our world around us today. Transform our perspective, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.